Okay, so let me just start by saying, as I was kind of praying, uh, yes, this psalm is a little bit weird. And it's also a little bit different from some of the psalms we've been in recently uh, because it's, it's a psalm of David. It's, it's very, it's in the first person, uh, singular. It's not, it's, it's talking more about the horizontal aspects of the faith in, in, in our community and among God's people than it is about God himself. It's there, it's just, it's just not the major theme uh, on the surface. So if we zoom out, though, and read this in context, it's going gonna, it's gonna to help us out a whole lot. So... And this is especially uh, the case if, if you're, this is your first time uh, here at the table. This summer, we are in book four of the Psalms, and that is because the Psalms are, are divided up into five different books, and each one kind of has a different theme. The theme for book four is about maturation, right? This is, this is especially given, has given hope to Israel when they were in exile in Babylon. They were learning from their failure. They had been taken off into a foreign country, away from what they knew and depended on. And they, in that wilderness, so to speak, in that exile, they were deepening their appreciation of God's chesed, his steadfast love and faithfulness. And so much of this is is, is going to root into that theme of maturity. Also, in Psalms 92 through 100, the, this actually is kind of like a mini, like a, a, a mini series within Book Four that is is referred to as Yahweh Malak, and what that means is the Lord is King. It's all about the kingship of of Yahweh and how He is sovereign. So Psalm 101 through 103 that we're kind of starting a maybe a three part little mini series this morning in is called the Davidic Triad, and it's very, it's very much like, okay, if, if God is this, is, is this kind of God in Psalms 92 through 100, okay, well then what must his king look like? What does it look like for a human king to dispense justice like God does and in a way that is upright and, and, and righteous? Well, it's also interesting, and, and I, I'm, I'm excited about the next few weeks because uh, I it's really obvious. Like, I encourage you actually to go home. Uh, when you go home, don't go home now. When you go home, read Psalms 101 through 103 just in one sitting, like a few times. Notice the differences because there is a, a trajectory of growth and maturity that is happening there that is really beautiful and fascinating. And so that's what we're going to be talking about the next few weeks is what, what is godly growth? Uh, and so if there is a word that sums up Psalm 101, it is aspiration. It is aspiration because this is what, after several psalms about Yahweh being king, this is what the, a human king serving the king of kings must aspire to. So let's roll up our sleeves and dig in. Let's look at uh, the first four verses because they are all around this theme of personal righteousness. Right In verse 2a, it says, he starts off, I will ponder the way that is blameless. That word ponder is like not just kind of an intellectual thinking about uh, at at like an intellectual distance. It's not just conceptual. There is an active, engaged aspect of this. Kind of like when you're saying like, oh, what are you studying? Are you just reading something? That's, That's not what this is talking about. It's more like I'm studying to be a doctor. You don't just read books when you become a doctor, right? You You are actively engaged. You have a a, a practicum aspect of it too. So it's, this is an all comprehensive pondering being described. When he says, 
Oh, when will you come to me? There's kind of this like awareness even then, like, oh man, it's a little bit that I've pondered the way that is blameless. Um, turns out I've got a long way to go. And I need God in the midst of that. Otherwise, I don't have any hope. The second half of that verse, um, when he says, I will walk with integrity of heart. In a, in a psalm like this, it's easy to read integrity as kind of that that moral uprightness, like I have character, I have integrity, but it also is the kind of integrity that you use to describe the whole of a ship. It's whole. It doesn't have holes in it. It doesn't, it doesn't have a, a, a weakness or a failure embedded in it waiting to fall apart. So this is talking about a moral wholeness, a, a principled consistency. In fact, he says he will not even <clears throat> set before his eyes anything that is worthless. So in other words, David is not on any social media. Um, he's definitely not watching any cable news. Um, mo- like de- no soap operas, uh, bad day- daytime TV. The TV just stays off for David, right? That's, that's what he's talking about. Um, at least, okay. When he says, I hate the work of those who fall away, it's, I want to encourage you that, like, this is not describing, like, those who fall away because of doubt, like, they're struggling, or it's hard, and they just couldn't keep up. This is an act of disloyalty. He's saying, I will hate the work of those who betrayed trust, okay? Now, verse 4 puts a bow on it with a summary, and, and this, in, in a lot of ways, verse 4 is like, this is, this is what verses 1 through 3 mean. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. I will not be intimate or close to evil. He's talking about the importance of what we talked about a couple weeks ago in a a definition of holiness that means to be set apart for a higher purpose, right? So this is a commitment to holistic, personal righteousness. In a sense, David is saying, I understand that the responsibility I'm given as as the king of God's people is, is it has to start with me. It has to start with the, this kind of covenantal commitment that says, I know God will be there to uphold his end of the bargain, and I am committing to partnering with him in whatever that requires of me. Now, um, I think some of the most uh, familiar comparisons we could make with this is, you know, we talked last week about how marriage and the vows that you make, like what that means. How many of you have perfectly and without any error whatsoever upheld your vows in marriage? Cool. We got one, which is very aspirational. Good job. Um, not going to call you out. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> I, I was thinking so much about the ordination vows I said yes to and took when I first became a pastor, right? Like, I'm going to read one of them to you. There's like, I think there's eight, eight or nine But number seven is this, do you engage to be faithful and diligent in the exercise of all your duties, all of them, as a Christian and a minister of the gospel, whether personal or relational, private or public, and to endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your manner of life and to walk with exemplary piety before the flock of God, flock of which God shall make you overseer. overseer. So naturally, I responded to that by saying, I'm going to try really hard, but no promises. No, I didn't say that. I said, I do. And I, re- and I meant it then, and I mean it now. That doesn't mean that I won't fail. But I, I'm, I'm, 
I'm kind of dwelling on this point because I think too often in the area of like personal righteousness, like what does it mean to grow spiritually, to, to be transformed from the inside by, out, by God, too often we have this attitude that if we can't achieve it, if, we, if it's not possible or if it's, it's, it feels like it's a perfectionist standard, then we're not going to endeavor to do it at all. Because that, you know, that's legalistic, right? And we don't want to be like the worst thing we could be as moralistic Pharisees. Because authenticity is, is, God cares more about my authenticity, right, than pursuing character and moral uprightness. And we just need to love ourselves. That's, that's really the problem here, right? I hope you can tell from my tone that, like, there, there are some real problems with that. Um, how many of you, it's so funny, I, you ever, like, remember a movie for some reason and you're like, oh my gosh, yeah, that was a few years ago. When was that? When did that movie come out? 1997. Cool. Uh, so how many of you have seen the movie As Good As It Gets? <laughs> Speaking of, 1997, starring Jack Nicholson and Helen Hunt, who both won Academy Awards for it. There's this great scene in the movie where Jack Nicholson plays a unfathomably neurotic, uh, OCD, ironically, uh, romance author who is working on his 60-second book, um, and he's just this, he's all kinds of words I shouldn't say with kids around. He's a jerk, right? He says things that, like, were not okay to say out loud in 1997, never mind now. Um, and, and overall, he's just this kind of cynical, he's just, not, he's just not kind. So there's a scene in the movie where he's starting to, like, have... His, his, mis- his preconceptions, his misconceptions about like, what would make him happy kind of shaken up. And he runs to his psychiatrist's office uh, in New York City, you know, walking and not stepping on any cracks the entire way. And he gets to his psychiatrist's off- office and barges in, and his psychiatrist says, no, you have to schedule an appointment. And he said, no, do you know how hard it was for me to get here? I'm being authentic right now. You know me. Can you please understand me and... and and make some allowances for me. And he says, no, you're going to make an appointment because that's how I'm helping you. You need to, to conform to this. You need to, like, try it. Just try it, he says. And so eventually he, he finally stops arguing. He, he leaves the office and goes out into the, uh, into the, the waiting room. And he, he, as he's walking out, he, it's full of people, and he just pauses. He says, what if this is just as good as it gets? And in that moment, what he's kind of articulating is like, what if I can't change? Like, I, I wanted help. I asked for help. And now I got to, it feels harder because I asked for help. I don't know if I can do this. What if this is as good as it gets? And I think that, that, that articulates our fear, doesn't it? That like, Wherever we are right now, what if this is as good as it gets? Like, what if this is the best I can do? And so the idea of aspiring to a personal righteousness that David is describing is really, it feels heavy. That's my second, okay, maybe it's my third or fourth favorite scene in the movie. There's a lot of great scenes in that movie. Um, Fast forward in the movie, though, and it's 25 years old, so there's no spoiler alert here. It's your own fault if you haven't seen it. Um, Toward the end of the movie, 
he's on this kind of unexpected date with Carol, who's played by Helen Hunt, and, and they sit down to dinner, and I don't, rem- I don't even remember what the, what the prompt it was, but he said something like utterly, oh, he said, he said, I had to go out and get a suit and tie, and they let in, you in with this house dress. And it's like, okay, get a filter, bro. Um, and she, she's like sitting down, and she's like, yeah, okay, um, give me one compliment. Like just one time, can you just stop? Can you just give me one compliment? Or I'm gone, I'm leaving. And he's hemming and hawing and he says, um, he says, um, so I have this ailment, he says, right? He says, I have this ailment. And my psychiatrist tells me that, you know, taking a pill can help about 50 to 60% of the people. And, and I hate pills. And he starts to go off on this rabbit trail of like how bad pills are and they're dangerous. And like, he's starting to like lose it again. And he's like, here's my point. He's like, when you rejected me, and you told me we'd never be together. He said, the next morning, I started taking my pills. And Helen Hunt is just like, how is that a compliment to me? Like, what in the world? And he's, he just pauses and he says, you make me want to be a better man. And it's beautiful. And that is the contrast the evolution from, the, and the difference between what if this is good as it gets and you make me want to be a better man is his experience of her goodness. Because Carol, the character played by Helen Hutt, is, she is she's the only person who, has, who is actually kind to this total jerk without asking for anything from him. And he is overwhelmed by her goodness such that he pays for a doctor to help take care of her son because she's just a waitress and she can't afford good health insurance. He is, he, is, he is overwhelmed by her goodness and her kindness. And so I want to encourage you, if, if this feels heavy, it's because we still need to be overwhelmed by God's kindness. And it's ironic, right? Part, part of what gets in the way of this is, is Immediately after he says this to her, she says, that's the best compliment I've ever been given. And because it's a late 1990s rom-com, he had to break the tension, but I think this actually said some truth that maybe was even more than what was intended. And Jack Nicholson replies with saying, you know, maybe I, maybe I overshot a bit because I was, just, I was aiming at just enough to keep you from walking out. And it's funny and it's cute, but I think that's how we look at personal righteousness with God, too. We don't aspire to much. We aim at just enough to keep God from walking out. And, but either God is good enough and loves us graciously enough for us to want to be a better son or daughter of God, right? Right? Or his love is too fragile and fickle to take the risk, and so we aim for him just tolerating us. And I don't think we can do both. I think those are two fundamentally different trajectories that we can be on. The good news is that, uh, as Ligon Duncan says, sanctification is lifelong, uneven, and unfinished. And yes, that's the good news. (laughs) But what Psalm 101 helps us see is that David's aspiration and ours is also, it's a lifelong pursuit that's made worthwhile 
because of the goodness and kindness of God. So that's not actually antithetical to growth. It's not legalistic. It actually drives us to look more at God's own heart. Now, that's the first half of Psalm 101. Let's jump into the second half because these are kind of two sides of the same coin, and they're going to be linked in some ways that may be surprising. I'm going to reread verses 5 through 8 again to refresh our memories. It says, Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. <laughs> okay. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. It's very inclusive of David. Uh, I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless, blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Whew. Cool. Um, I wish David weren't quite so nuanced here. Um, let's set aside for a second what sounds like pretty merciless judgment, to be honest, and the language of how, what, he, what David is saying here. And like, look at the bad behavior that he's talking about. Not just the judgment of the bad behavior, but the bad behavior itself. This describes kind of this, this interesting recipe and different ingredients that are like hidden malicious slander that is intended to tear down, to dishonor those that are being slandered. It's full of, and you know, when it says uh, uh, an arrogant heart or a haughty look, this is describing a condescension and a self-righteousness that is very, very uh, reminiscent of what Jesus described as going on in the hearts of Pharisees. It's, he's, he's not going to uh, humor any deceit or lies. It's, it's describing and painting this picture of, of a, a degree of me-centeredness and selfishness that is about your own benefit and, and growth and not your community. There is a positive verse in here, right? I will look with favor on, on the faithful in the land, right? That they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. And that is in many ways the opposite of what's being described in the rest of those verses. And they're all related. And they're related in this way. King David is laser-focused on this, I, this, this reality that we don't take near enough stock with, right? And that is that, the, that our individual conduct either integrates or disintegrates community. Our individual conduct either integrates or disintegrates community, right? We, we in Western culture, we operate off of this ethic of live and let live, right? Of my actions done uh, on my own, without anybody around, or directly affecting anybody, it doesn't, that's not their concern because it doesn't affect them. If it doesn't harm anyone, it's not bad. But this presumes that there is no spiritual connection here, or that what we do doesn't backfill into shaping our hearts. We assume we're all these, we're just independent islands whose actions don't ripple beyond what we can see, right? It's kind of like there's this uh, analogy in philosophy uh, of, a, of a drunk looking for his keys only beneath the street lamp because that's where he can see. We assume that because we don't see all of the ripple effects of our personal righteousness or, the, or lack thereof, that it doesn't affect anyone else. 
So we understand, right, you, you get how this is affecting community, how these are all actually interrelated. I want to ask now, knowing that, how does David saying that he will destroy the wicked morning by morning all in, in the land? Feels great, right? Totally cool. Easy. Cool, moving on. Um, I'm kidding. No, it's still hard and still a problem, frankly, because part of what we are taking to this text, in addition to just the not realizing how much our actions affect others and have this ripple effect, we also are carrying this assumption and are convinced that we are our own source of authority, that we determine right and wrong, and especially if the ends justify the means. That means that is, that's kind of the, the trump card you can play, right? And so to the degree that this is difficult for us, and, and I want to be, be very clear, this makes me uncomfortable too. And that is exposing an assumption in my own heart that I am the source of my own authority and not Scripture. But we need to seek and understand why that is the case. Now, let me, let me make this a little bit more concrete because it's one thing to say this, and I think most of us would be like, okay, yeah, that sounds like a good idea, but let me, let's let the rubber hit the road. When someone, let's just talk about judgment in general, right? When, when someone is, uh, when you empathize with a sin, how much more often are you likely to say and quote Jesus when he says, thou shalt not judge? It's not your sin, it's somebody else's sin, right? But like, if you can identify with them, you're like, oh man, that had to have been really hard for them in that situation. And look at their story and their perspective and how they were trying, but they still, you know, yeah, they were reactive. But like, we say these as mitigating considerations that while valid, my point is not whether it is, it is judgment is more deserving. It's how common it is our empathizing with it that makes us want to refrain from judging or or, or be frustrated with other people who are judging, right? Contrast that with someone who, and I'm going to talk politics in a moment, so maybe you can just imagine that maybe somebody who disagrees with you politically has done something actually con- like contemptible, but because you don't understand why they did that, or you don't have the same life experiences, or, and, and you don't really want to try because you disagree with them, and it's really good news to you that they have fallen and don't have the character to, to be in politics or what have you, you proclaim instead of thou shalt not judge, justice has been served. Like, let's just be honest with ourselves. This is, this is universal across humanity. We are tribal creatures. We are going to bend the rules for people who we agree with and we identify with and empathize with, but we are missing the point if we do. Because that is a, that is a, that's, that's, that comes from a bad place of thinking we are our own source of authority. Let me give you one more kind of like way that this is the case because I know this is, this is a little bit more kind of esoteric, but it's also so important to understanding what's happening in Psalm 101. Uh, in the book of Judges, just totally co- coincidental that judges and judgment are like related here. Um, judges in the Old Testament era were kind of... Uh, proto-kings they, before David and Saul before him, um, and there were several of them, there is this refrain that, that when introducing each new judge, the, the book of Judges uses to summarize what is happening in Israel at the time. And that refrain is, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone 
did what was right in their own eyes. Contrast that with David's commitment to not set before his eyes anything that is worthless. That is not an accidental connection. This phrase, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, it is used in Judges to foreshadow and summarize a season and, and why a ju- God sent a judge, but a season that was especially egregious and rampant in its injustice. And it links that season to that as the cause. In other words, <laughs> right, I, I would say one of the most post-Christian things about our world right now, and I mean this both inside the church and outside the church, one of the most post-Christian beliefs we can carry uh, in our culture is, is this genuine, sincere belief that doing what is right in your own eyes is, is actually how we order a just society. Do you realize that? How much we believe that if we, if we just did, allowed people to do what is right in their own eyes even more, then everybody would be happy. How is that working out for us? Okay? By the way, don't hear what I'm not saying this is not like a setup for Christian nationalism to like enforce biblical law on people who don't believe it, okay? You'll see why, where I'm going in a minute, but I just want to like anticipate that that might be something you're hearing. Um, it's actually, yeah, anyway. Let's talk politically right now. Paul just described in verses 5 through 8, or not Paul, David, slander, deceit, and self-righteousness I can't think of a more unholy trinity that we now have in political discourse as civic virtues. And, and they, are, they are civic virtues to the degree that it either furthers our agenda or slows the agenda of those we disagree with, again, politically speaking. And over time, what that has led to is that we, we keep excusing our side of unrighteous conduct in a way that has, has metastasized to full-blown, take-no-prisoners populism and it's tearing us apart. And, and part of why I'm focusing on this is because I, when I read Psalm 101 for the first time, I, I, it's, it's easy actually to hear in this, this a, an attitude that sounds very similar to the self-righteousness that is pervading and, and saturating our politics right now. But the difference is verses 1 through 4. It's first person. David is saying, I'm going I'm to hold myself to this standard. I'm going to prevent the, the despicable injustices that tear our social fabric apart. I'm going to prevent those from getting a foothold. But I'm only going to expect of myself this kind of commitment as, a, as an example and as a demonstration. Because David understood, and this is, this is how these two pieces are linked, that public justice is the purpose of, of private or personal righteousness. That when God says, be holy as I am holy, and we talked about holy meaning set apart, the purpose of being set apart for, the purpose of committing to and looking to, to God for your personal righteousness is, is so that there can be public justice. So that we can have community that is integrated and not disintegrating. In other words, the goal of godly growth Psalm 101 is showing us is the flourishing of your community, all of the communities that you are engaged in. 
And David starts with himself. He then, he then moves to his immediate community. As king, he has advisors and, and um, decision makers below him, other leaders, and he trusts that that will ripple out into concentric circles. And so you can, either, you can either walk with integrity for the good of your community or sow disintegration at the expense of your community. One glorifies God, and the other one glorifies you. So, okay. I know you're going to have some questions, so I've got four uh, kind of more concrete so what applications from everything I've been talking about. Um, but feel free to start texting in those questions, and once I get through these four, we'll, we'll dive in, okay? The so what here. If you read Psalm 103 when you get home, like I encourage you to do, I want you to know and read it knowing that without the aspiration of Psalm 101, you will never need or love God like David expresses in Psalm 103. Right? What I mean by that is, Without, if, if we lower the bar to make it easier in the short term, it may make it easier in the short term, but it robs us of sanctification and growth and the joy-filled relationship of knowing that God loves you despite all of your gaps and all of your deficiencies and all of your failures and all of your brokennesses and all of your sins, that you can be authentic not just with how you feel, but also how you are broken. The second application here is I encourage you to read, through the, read Psalm 101 through the lens of counting the cost. What David is articulating and is so aware of as king, bearing that burden of responsibility, is that it's not just about you. It's not just about you. Your community, and by that I mean your family, your spouse, your neighbors, your coworkers, are blessed by and through your maturation in ways that you will never see. And in ways that maybe they, they will even recognize but never tell you because it's kind of weird, right, for us to do. But also, if you're a Christian, the purpose of your personal righteousness, the purpose of your holiness, the purpose of your being set apart is, again, because that God specifically made you a part of the church's redemptive work and witness in the world. And if I were God, I would not have done that, just to be honest. I would have picked me last for kickball too, okay? That's the brilliance and insanity of God's heart. It's because the witness and the work that he has for us is the radical nature of grace that says it's not because of your worth that I, that I choose you. It is because of my worth that you are chosen. And that is a dramatically different... That, there, is, there is nothing in this world that comes close to matching that goodness. That <laughs> can help us say, I want, you make me want to be a better Christian, a better Jesus follower, a better son or daughter of God. Number three, um, read this as grace from start to finish. <laughs> right? Verse two, I said, and I pointed this out at the very beginning, he says, oh, when will you come to me? This following verse 1, I think, and, and commentators agree that this is probably the most likely way of understanding it, is when, when David is singing of the steadfast love and justice, when he's singing to the Lord, when he's making music to him, he cannot help but ponder the way that is blameless. Like to love God and to worship him is to ponder the way that is blameless, to study it, to, to live it out, to, to do it. And 
to ask, oh, when will you come to me, is an awareness of the weight of, of his responsibility that is anchored and rooted in God. And that is good in his grace from start to finish, right? Others, uh, this, is like, this is like a covenantal petition. This is him saying, I know what is required of me, God, and I'm going to need you to do this if, it's, if I have any chance at all. And we know that this is great from start to finish because if you know anything about David's story, that when he says, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless, like using your power as king to, uh, to force a woman who is married to one of your generals to sleep with you against her will, like, oh, is that really setting before your eyes anything that is worthless? Not setting before your eyes anything that's worthless? Is it disloyal? Has he hated the work of, of, of the disloyal by having Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, the general, killed on the front lines of battle to cover up his own shame? The irony is thick in Psalm 101. That doesn't mean, that is not given to us to encourage us not to pursue or to aspire toward personal righteousness. It's given that to us to, to encourage us that the greatest king in Israel's history, second to Christ himself only, failed miserably. You're still loved. Last thing before we do questions. Is I encourage you, not from a place of like condemnation, like because you suck or anything like that. I encourage you to ponder, study, pursue personal righteousness with all of your faculties and with all of the freedom you have. By that I mean, if you notice, and you may have noticed in verses two through four that there is a full engagement of all of David's faculties in that head, heart, and hands. The head ponders, the heart is, that's the language of dwelling with eyes and his worship of God and his hands walking with integrity. David is not doing this with one foot in and one foot out. He is all in with both feet. I encourage you to ponder similarly. When I say with all freedom, know that God's love is not contingent any more than your perfection is instant. What I mean by that is this is a progressive, there's actually a doctrine called progressive, sanct, progressive sanctification. And that means the sanctification is lifelong, uneven, and unfinished, and it's dependent on Christ. We cooperate with him and the Holy Spirit, but he is the one that does it. Not an overnight thing. So, all right, we have one question so far. How would you suggest we think about per pursuing personal growth when simply surviving daily life, for example, parenthood, feels all-consuming? Personal growth can feel very much like a I'll get to it later thing. Good question. Um, when I get frustrated with my kids, I have more evidence of my need for personal growth than I do of any progress. So I hear you. Um, let me think of a, a succinct way of saying this. When I said uh, earlier during the confession, I said, we think that personal growth or, or personal righteousness, maturation, means sinning less. It actually means repenting faster. 
I didn't grow up in a Christian household at all. To this day, I'm the only Christian in my family. And I actually don't remember a time when I was a kid and really well into adulthood, I don't remember my parents ever apologizing to me. I just don't have a memory of it. it. It's probably happened, but it was infrequent enough that I don't know, it didn't happen. I'm trying very hard at every opportunity, despite the idea of apologizing to a five-year-old who is frustrated with me because I'm frustrated with him because he hasn't listened to the sixth time I asked him put, to put his shoes on. To, I'm trying to apologize and repent more quickly and more often. And you will be surprised how much growth God uses that for. And so, it, it, and also, let me just maybe push back on one of the assumptions that is, is underneath this question. I don't know if it's underneath your asking this question, but it is most of our questions. Is that growth happens when we're comfortable. No. It is rare. Like, okay, if you have an experience of that, I'm jealous. It is a gift of supernatural, miraculous proportion, okay? We'll, learn, we'll see next week in Psalm 102 how much that is not the case. And that's basically what all Psalm 102 is, is, is about. But there, it is a pernicious lie that is very much around the kind of self-help and wellness movement and things that we are bombarded, messages and, and stories we're bombarded with all the time that if we could just get some you know, emotional distance from our stress, then we could grow. That's not how it works. So, uh, I got another question. Ooh, a couple more. Okay. In the verses of judgment, is it David speaking or the Lord for whom David is the mouthpiece? Only Jesus hears what we say in private. Though King David had power to execute, only Jesus can send to shale the wicked or destroy them. So, good question. So, let me, let me uh, kind of rephrase the question just to, to make this a little bit easier to, to say and engage with. Is this David speaking on behalf of God, uh, or is this God's speaking primarily? This is a psalm of David. So this is David speaking on behalf of God through an awareness of what it means to be a king who represents him. And so in Old Testament Israel, we had kings... God's people had kings who absolutely did execute, and maybe he wouldn't know about the things that happened in private um, all the time, but where he did find about it, yes, he would. he would. He would respond with justice. And so, but David's own inability to practice what he preaches is why, to the second part of your question, we look to Jesus because David helps us to see we need a true and better king, that we need a king who is righteous, who is holy and executes justice with grace. So yes, that is, that is absolutely the point. Okay, um, next question. Progressive sanctification, pursuing personal righteousness, sounds hard, too hard to do alone. Yes, that is true. Um, I have nothing to add to that. In fact, I would say it is impossible to do alone, and it is only when... Uh, our hearts and the dark parts of our hearts are provoked by others, like I was describing with my son, hypothetically, of course. Um, it's often in those cases when, when, we are, when we have to repent and to actually do business with it. 
When, when, it's only when people who know us well enough to call us out on our crap that we're around them enough for them to call us out on our crap can we grow. Last question. Did you say David was self-righteous in verses 5 through 6? Or, would it's, or it would seem like that if you didn't see his own pursuit of righteousness in verses 1 through 4? Oh, so 5 through 6, good helpful court clarification. Um, I was saying in verse 5, whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, David is describing self-righteousness there. He's not saying, I, I didn't mean to say if I did inadvertently, that David was self-righteousness, self-righteous to say that. I was trying to say that like self-righteousness is one of the things he's trying to stamp out uh, for the sake of a just society. So thank you for asking that question. If I misspoke, my apologies. Um, so on the, on, in the vein of, of Christ being our true and better David, and the need for a king who is fully righteous. That is why we have the gift of communion, right? When Jesus was with his disciples, he took the bread and he broke it. And he says, this is my body. It is broken for you. I will be broken because of your inability to keep the covenant so that the covenant can be kept. In other words, when Jesus is breaking the bread, specifically on Paso- in Passover, what he is saying is, is, I am the lamb that is broken so that you could be rescued, though, yes, you are undeserving. Likewise, he takes the wine and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the remission of sins. In other words, I'm clearing away any record whatsoever of your personal unrighteousness such that in this community, when you celebrate and take this uh, bread and drink this wine, you proclaim that this is a transformed and a different kind of community that is not defined by deceit or self-righteousness, but a holy, beautiful, grace-saturated, grace-fueled dependence on me. When he says that, he is communicating and helping us see that when we celebrate communion t- together, because this is a celebration, when we celebrate communion together, we are being nourished in community and in communion with God for that personal self-righteousness, for that personal righteousness and public justice. Let's pray.